This is uh, lesson number two on being a servant. And all of these lessons have been uh, flavored or uh, tailored for women. But that doesn't mean we as men can't get something out of it. But we're teaching on being a servant. But these lessons have been kind of more uh, aiming at women and helping women to become handmaidens of the Lord. Men in America could certainly step up and be harder workers, especially in the home. Men, men have always been hard workers on the job for the most part. But then we get lazy. We come home and, you know, we've worked eight hours and we're ready to unwind. And our wives have worked ten hours by the time we get home. And they're going to work seven more hours before we go to bed. And I am preaching pretty good already. It's just Sunday school. So we take plenty of aim and swing at men. And we definitely have lessons that are trying to help men find their masculinity again. We know anything God ordains, the devil assaults. And when God ordains men to lead and be hard workers, the devil assaults that. It, it didn't help us that since the 1970s, all the sitcoms made men look like fat, lazy cowards and has really stripped their masculinity. And we've kind of just fallen in line with that. And at the same time, it's painted the women to be the voice of the household and the smart problem solver. And she is a tremendous voice and she is a problem solver. She's just not designed to be the head of the home unless she's a single mother. And so we're having to reverse course. And so you men know you need to, when you come home from work, your first job's done, your second is not. And I'm so thankful ESPN is going bankrupt. It'll save many marriages. They just, I just read, sadly enough, this morning laying in bed checking my news. I just read ESPN is laying off 40 of their main personalities because they are losing money left and right, which is good for them because they've gotten too political. It's not about sports anymore. It's about making us pagans. So I curse ESPN. Go back to sports. May you prosper. If it's going to be politics, fail. And if you're going to kill marriages, fail as well. And husbands, if you're given the SPN, put a knife to your throat. Restrain that appetite. It doesn't matter. i tell you what's going to happen on the next game. Somebody's going to win. Somebody's going to lose. And somebody's going to make way too much money. And then they're going to want to uh, protest and strike next year because they're not making enough money. A million dollars a game is not enough money to play the love of your life. This is America. You can tell we have no problems when we're striking because a million dollars to throw basketball in the hoop is not enough money. Anyway, let's move on. Handmaidens of the Lord. Famous handmaidens of the Bible, part one. This lesson was originally five or six pages, and I wanted to be able to slow it down and teach it more, so we cut it in half. So we're going to look at famous handmaidens of the Bible because the problem we're shooting or troubleshooting in America is the feminist movement that takes what God has ordained as a powerful woman the Proverbs 31 woman, the Titus 2 woman, this creative, this, this beautiful being called a woman who God built, different from how God formed man. Genesis uses two different words to describe how he created man versus how he created woman. And the Hebrew implies he put a lot more detail on woman. And it's evident because women are a lot more skilled at so many different things than a man is. And every year at Mother's Day, the, the secular media always puts out the average job description of the average American woman. And she usually does about 105 different jobs in a week. And they always tally it up. And if she gotten paid they, that job description's hourly wage, by the end of the year, she'd make a quarter million a year. And usually she's a stay-at-home mom that doesn't get paid anything but the unthankful gratefulness of a bratty child who doesn't appreciate what they have until they're 25 themselves. The world takes that creativity and design that's in a woman and wants to pervert it and make it into a man. And so really what the world is trying to do through feminism is limit a woman. Whereas a woman is a, an immaculate Swiss army knife for life and man is just a little folding. <laughs> Look at me, I'm man. <laughs> Look at me, I'm shiny. You know, a woman, she has all these things that come out of her. 
Uh, and uh, what the world wants to do through feminism and secularism and lesbianism is uh, take a woman and break off every instrument and try to make her like a man. And you're not supposed to be like a man. And I'm not supposed to be like a woman. And if we could just be who God made us to be, the world would be much happier. The whole confusion is what's destroying the earth. The Bible says God is not the author of confusion, but somebody else is, and he is our enemy. So we want to look at handmaidens of the Lord because we're trying to wash this feminist thing off of us as, as women of God, or you. I'm not a woman of God. I'm a man of God. You're the woman of God, but I'll speak in the inclusive pronouns of we, us, and them. Famous handmaidens of the Bible is what we're going to look at to see when these women served God and did and operated according to their design, we want to see the fruit and the reward of that because that should encourage and promote you or propel you to be a handmaiden of God and not a Jezebel of the devil or a feminist of the devil. I just, feminism is anti-woman. It's all there is to it. So let's look at our lessons here. We will now look at biblical examples of handmaidens and what servitude afforded these great women of God. Society today mocks servile-minded people. Unless, of course, you're in Silicon Valley and Steve Jobs owns you 100 hours a week. Then being a servant is okay because you're making the next iPhone. Well, anyway, there's a hypocrisy there. There's a duplicitousness in our society when we mock servants, unless, of course, you're in Silicon Valley or you're working for an engineering firm. And then it's okay to be served or to be a servant or to be owned. But if we're talking about serving your husband or serving the kingdom of God or serving your children, you're better than that. Oh, let Steve Jobs own you or Apple for 120 hours a week, only pay you 100000 a year, which is not much when you're working 120 hours a week. And that kind of servile-mindedness is okay. But when we're talking about doing it for the glory of God, then that's when it's not acceptable because it's godly. I'm not against working 100 hours a week if that's what you want to do, but I'm exposing the hypocrisy of our culture. Society today mocks servile-minded people, but try to imagine the outcome of the following handmaidens had they acted American in their respective situations. Handmaidens are not weak. It takes great strength to be a handmaiden of the Lord. With the last week's lesson, we saw that servant or handmaiden is the only title in the Bible you can earn. And you earn it by laying down your life for the kingdom. You, you don't earn the born-again title. You don't earn the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus title. You don't earn the title of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, or teacher. You don't earn any of these titles. The only title you can earn is being called a servant or a handmaiden. Uh, and not every Christian qualifies to have that title applied to their life. We should all aim for that. We should all strive to be called a servant of the Lord. Uh, you see in the Bible when God defends his people, he says, have you considered my servant? He doesn't say, have you considered my church member? It's, it's only when you earn that title of servant and one that lays down your life does the Lord begin to speak for you and defend you and promote you. Other than that, you're just, you know, part of the body. Just like a natural parent, God has kids he's proud of and kids he's praying for. <laughs> and uh, I want to make sure I'm one God is proud of and not one he's always having somebody intercede for. Amen. So our first handmaiden in the Bible, which may be shocking to you, is Hagar, and I only pulled the women from the Bible that were called handmaidens. Hagar is the first woman in the Bible called a handmaiden. And now she gets a bad rap because she's the mother of Ishmael. But I want to point out she had no say in any of it. She was a slave. She was acquired in Egypt. When Abraham and Sarah went down there out of fear, out of the will of God, and they were wealthy enough to buy help. 
And that's what they did. Slave trade has always existed. Slave trade will exist into the revelation. You're not going to stop the slave trade. I mean, we shouldn't try, but you're not going to stop it. The revelation says when Babylon falls, there are slaves in Babylon, which is the Middle East. And there are slaves in the Middle East today because one of the biggest promoters of slavery today is Islam. The biggest promoter of slavery in the 17th and 18th century was not just Europe, but it was Arabs working with the Portuguese. Just so you know your history and don't get just caught up in Black Lives Matters. It's been the Arabs in the last two, three hundred years that have greatly promoted and continue to promote slavery. I'm, I'm somewhat friends with a pastor in East Tennessee who has gone to Sudan and bought slaves from Muslims. Raised money. I've, I've seen pictures. I met with him in his office. He, he, he took $20,000 and sat down with these sultans in Sudan. Sudan is Muslim and he bought women out of the slave trade. Now, think, now that's horrific. It's a wonderful testimony he was able to do that. But think about what you could do with an offering. We're going to raise $20,000 today and we're going to go buy people their freedom. The fact that you can even do that today. But that's, that's perversion. Hagar was a slave. She was purchased to be a handmaiden to Sarah. She had no say in any of this. I know we, get, we look down on her because she gave birth to Ishmael, and Ishmael is who the Muslims believe is the promised son, and they're all wrong. But she was just an innocent young girl. Hagar was Sarah's handmaiden acquired in Egypt. Her name, by the way, means flight. Her servitude gave her a son promoted by God. Now think about that. Her servitude promoted her. In those days, what every woman wanted was a son. That's what you see over and over again in the Bible when they're barren. Give me a son. Lord, give me a son. So her servitude, her faithfulness, her hard work gave her a woman's desire, which was to have a boy. That was the height of prosperity, of pride. Uh, a woman in those days wasn't worried about weight gain or weight loss. She wasn't worried about handbags or purses. She wasn't worried about social media status. She wanted a boy. And her servitude and her faithfulness, though she was a slave, got her promotion. She was Sarah's handmaiden acquired in Egypt. God honored her because of her faithfulness. And you can study the story about her in Genesis 16 and chapter 21. She was one of Abraham's, uh, Abraham's wives. She was not a biblical bad guy. I want to be very clear on that. She gets a bad rap, but she was not a bad guy. She was a faithful servant who was misused by her mistress. And she was poorly treated by her mistress for many, many years. Even though she was a victim of Sarah's faithlessness, now think about that. Sarah is supposed to be the mother of us all, and she is, but after she repented and got her relationship with Jesus Christ right, but Sarah couldn't fathom the fact, how could she bear a child? And it wasn't working, so she came up with the idea, Abraham, here, maybe God's going to use Hagar. It was totally Sarah's idea, and so what does the handmaiden do? Yes, my, maid, yes, my, my, my uh, madam. And so here's this young girl, probably 18, 19, 20, goes and sleeps with a 100-year-old man at her mistress's behest. She's just obeying. You don't, you don't think a 20-year-old girl is in lust over a 100-year-old man with a big beard riding camels, do you? She's just doing what she's told. Part of the weird culture of the day, we, it's foreign to our mindset today, but that's what happened. She just obeyed, and then she was mistreated for it. Because she gets pregnant. And probably it didn't just happen one sexual encounter because that rarely creates a baby. It probably went on for a season and she just obeys. 
Even though she was a victim of Sarah's faithlessness, Sarah's lack of faith came up with the idea that got Hagar pregnant. She continued to honor Sarah and Abraham. She was poorly treated because once she got pregnant, Sarah became jealous. Once Hagar was with child, Sarah was jealous and poorly treated her for 13 years. God spoke to her. Think about this. God spoke to Hagar and made a covenant with Hagar. It's all in the text there. We don't have time to look at it for time's sake. So Hagar's qualities. Number one, she was submitted. First handmaiden of the Bible, she was submitted. She was a submitted woman. She submitted to Sarah. She submitted to Abram. She submitted to the angel of the Lord. She obeyed all the leadership in her life. Number two, she was courageous. She fled into the wilderness after Sarah had mistreated her. And the angel of the Lord commanded her to go back and submit yourself under her hands. That took courage. You're so oppressed and beat up by the spiritual mother of Israel, you run away. And the angel says, go back and submit. Now, if she'd have been an American woman, that head would have been going in circles and that finger wagging. Uh-uh, I ain't going back. You go back, angel. She obeyed. This took great courage. She was eventually put out of Abram's home and did not put up a fight. She did not demand her own ways and say, you owe me alimony. You owe me child support. This is the woman's idea. She, she submitted every step of the way. She was a divorcee without a family to help her. Now think of Abraham this way. This will help our uh, modern mindset. Abraham was a sultan. He had flocks and flocks and flocks and soldiers. And he had a standing army among his own loins and among his own servitude. I mean, he's what we would understand today as a sultan. He was a nomad. He had no country. He, he was a massive tribe of people, just a Bedouin, if you know that term, moving up and down. And here, Hagar is nothing but a number of a, several thousand in that giant tribe of people. And as a young mother, she's divorced and put out by herself. And she's been a part of this tribe for so long, and now she has nothing. And she doesn't put up a fight. She goes out into the wilderness, and she's prepared to die, and God speaks to her. And says, I make a covenant with you. Don't fret. I will take care of you. And I will make of your boy a great nation. All because she was submitted and courageous. She had to trust God to care for her and her son. And the third point we see about Hagar, she was faith filled. She was a powerful woman of faith. She was quick to believe God. She doesn't even question him like Abraham did, like Sarah did, like Moses did, like Gideon did. She just said, yes, Lord. She never argued with God or doubted his promises. She didn't have to get a fleece. She didn't have five questions why she couldn't. She just said, yes, Lord. Tremendous woman of faith. And the Lord had prophesied and promised Abraham, of your seed I will make a great people. And Ishmael was seed. And so the promise and the covenant continued down to Hagar and her son. So here's Hagar's testimonies. Based on the fact that she was submissive, courageous, and faith-filled. The Lord spoke to her two times. And none of them were ever a rebuke. Once in person, can you imagine that that's what theologians call a theophany, when God divinely appears in man form and speaks to you. She has a theophany. Not very many people in the Old Testament had theophanies. Gideon did, Moses did, Joshua did. You don't find many others that did. Not even David is recorded as having an official theophany. Solomon had dreams. But here you have God in person appearing to Hagar, a young Egyptian handmaiden who is basically a single mother. And the second time the Lord speaks to her is from heaven itself. 
which is spectacular as well. God promised to multiply her seed exceedingly, and certainly he has. They're still all over the Middle East. They're not, Muslim is a spiritual seed, but the people is a natural seed. God named her son Ishmael. God picked the name. God picked the name. And God was with Ishmael, the Bible says. What did she overcome? Because that's one of the, that's one of the things I want us to see over and over again in this pattern. Handmaidens are overcomers. When you are faithful and you serve and God supports you and backs you up, you're always going to overcome the adversity thrown your way. What did she overcome? She overcame mistreatment to become the mother of a great nation. And the American mindset is you're not going to treat me just any way you want to. I'm going to stand up and fight back. And everybody's so Sue happy and everybody's a Sue coward. And so everybody's just walking in tremendous fear and timidity in this nation because everybody's lawless. But God doesn't promote lawless people. He doesn't promote cowards. He he promotes faithful, courageous servants. That's what we're going to see over and over and over again. So hopefully that shows you something you've never seen before about Hagar. We've always kind of thought she was the bad girl. She had no say in any of it. And yet God spoke to her more than a lot of people in the Bible and appeared to her supernaturally and had a covenant with her. You won't find any other woman in the Bible the Lord had a covenant with. And we don't have any record after that because the Bible follows the seed of Abraham. But certainly God continued to speak and appear because God was appearing to people constantly throughout the Bible who weren't Jews. God wasn't just a Jewish God. He was a God of the Jews, but he wasn't a Jewish God. There were other pharaohs that feared God. Nebuchadnezzar feared God. Uh, King Cyrus feared God. Artaxerxes feared God. King Darius feared God. These weren't Jews. These were total Gentiles, but they had relationships with the living God. And they were being grafted in. And I'm sure some of those great kings of history we'll see in heaven. Let's move on to Abigail. I like this name a lot. This was the name we chose when we found out that Abigail was going to be a girl and not a boy. We were a little disappointed at the sonogram or ultrasound because we were totally committed to having a boy. We had bought so much boy stuff. Now, we wouldn't trade Abigail for anybody, and we're definitely not transgender people. We're not going to be like the, one of these weird parents that wants attention on social media, so starts forcing their kid to dress the opposite sex like a lot of nut jobs do in America right now because the parents are weird sycophants that want the attention, so they force their kids this way and bring the demon upon their kid. We just said, well, God has given us a girl. We're crying. I said, let's go to El Tap. El Tap's a good comforter. <laughs> we did, so we went to El Tapatio. And uh, we had to kind of adjust our heart. Praise God. God saw fit to give us a girl. Let's find a good biblical girl. We want all of our kids to have biblical names because I want to honor God by naming our kids. And so we found one name. I don't remember what it was. We both thought, that's a cool sounding name. And so we looked it up. Horrible translation. That's like, you know, it's like, it was a beautiful, it was a really cool sounding name in the English ear, but in the Hebrew ear, it was just like God's enemy. I'm not going to name my daughter God's enemy. Should have looked deeper before we thought about that. So we came upon Abigail and I thought, I like Abigail. Plus, it means my father is joy, or my father's joy, or the joy of the father, which is really cool. Her servitude saved her family and made her a queen. So Hagar's servitude gave her a promised son. What every woman wants in the Bible was a son. Her servitude gave her the desire of her heart. Abigail's servitude saved her family and made her a queen. Think about that. You want to be in charge? Be a servant. You'll be made a queen. Abigail was a very humble yet powerful and wise woman. Even uh, in the house of Nabal, that was her husband, she was very powerful and very wise. And she understood what an idiot her husband was. 
She, she did not defend him or make excuses for him, but she, she covered up his messes a lot. And, and just she was constantly swinging behind him, cleaning up his messes. But the Bible says she was beautiful and wise and intelligent and shrewd. Her husband Nabal was a very wealthy but wicked man. Abigail was in charge of a very large estate, having servants under her command. See, when you serve faithfully, God puts people underneath you. And America has got two things really working against it. Number one, we're lawless. Number two, we're lazy. So we don't want to be told what to do, and then we don't want to do. So don't, I'll tell you what, I'm going to beat you to telling me what to do. I'm just not going to do. So in one fatal swoop, this nation has these overall culture that's both lazy and lawless. You're not going to tell me what to do because even if you did, I wasn't going to do it. This is not the testimony of Abigail. She knows what to do. She can be told what to do and she does it. And that made her a powerful woman, even in the house of Nabal. However, when she realized her husband had greatly sinned against David, and that was not something you wanted to do, she used her authority and wisdom to pacify David's anger and save her family. She understood David was on a marauding tour and anybody that got in his way, his mighty men of valor were wiping out. And she had seen how churlish, she said, churlish is an old King James word, what an idiot Nabal had been in mistreating King David. He was a young king. I mean, he was up and coming. He wasn't king yet. And uh, she said, please, um, Forgive the foolishness of my husband. And she, she basically bribed David. She brought a bunch of food and she took care of what her husband wouldn't. She cleaned up her husband's messes, which is what so many good women do today. Right, men? Yes. Let me tell off on you, gentlemen. I was back in the back workroom the other day, the snack bar. And I could tell it's all men working. And there aren't any women cleaning up after us because here's an empty box of cookies and here's an empty box of this. And then there's like half of something just crumbled and spread everywhere. And there's somehow there's grease stains down the wall. And, and you can tell men are back there because there's just sheetrock mud and dust all over everything that you shouldn't even be sheetrocking, mudding, or dusting. But that's because we don't have an Abigail working behind us. Because if it weren't for women, we'd still be living in caves, picking our nose and making body sounds. Now, we still do most of that. We just don't live in caves to doing it. Thank God for women. Women are meant to be lovely, beautiful. Any woman that looks and carries herself like a man has a demon. Because women are lovely and beautiful and dainty. And, and men are supposed to be rough and gruff. And we need the woman's help to kind of soften our edges. Amen to that. This is good preaching. If you're a feminist, you're not liking it much right now. But I have two little girls. You see the daintiness God puts in them from the time they're born. It takes a demon to get that out of them. Or a college, university education. Amen. Her ability to humble herself and serve earned her great promotion. So let's run through this real quick. Abigail's qualities, very similar to, to Hagar's, which is why she's called a handmaiden. She was submitted. Boy, if you're a feminist, that word is anathema to you. That word is worse than the F word or the B word or the N word. If you are a feminist, Jezebel, you don't want to hear the word submit. Ooh. Now you want everybody to submit to you if you're a feminist. But you don't want to submit to anybody. Not at all. Abigail submitted to David's authority and even submitted to his ultimate request for her hand in marriage after the death of Nabal. Nabal died. God killed him. He had a heart attack and his heart turned to stone and had a stroke. And then he said, marry me. He saw, David saw something tremendous in this woman and said, I, she's beautiful and she knows how to use authority and I need that, he said. 
And he took her hand in marriage and became one of his best wives. Well, that's a promotion. That way from an idiot to a king. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, you're hoping for divorce or your husband dies of a heart attack in concrete heart. <laughs> no, no, no. Be an Abigail and maybe Nabal will, will be delivered. She was humble. Abigail placed herself at the mercy of an angry David and did not argue or justify her husband. You know Nabal was stupid when here comes the kid that kills giants and he thinks he can starve David and, and mistreat David and not suffer some kind of ramification. You know this guy was just asking for an early death. Nobody messed with David after he killed Goliath. Nobody but the king was brazen enough and the king was demonized when he did it. She also washed the feet of David's servants when they came to deliver his marriage proposal. What a humble woman. Over a tremendous estate, she could have had any of her servants wash their feet. She did it herself. Authoritative. That doesn't mean belligerent. Abigail knew how to run her estate and command her servants, but she also helped in preparing the gift she sent to David. She wasn't just all do as I say, not as I do. She told her servants, this is what we have to do, and then she helped do it. We're looking at qualifications of a handmaiden of God. You won't find this in the American woman. The Guess Who had a famous song in the 70s called American Woman. They were a Canadian band. And the first line was, American Woman, stay away from me. Those Canadians, I don't give them a lot. Snow, Tim Horton donuts, hockey. I give them that, but I'll give them wisdom when it comes to American women. Look, I'm an American. I married an American woman. I'm raising two American girls, but we're trying to get the kingdom in us and lose this post-feminist thing. Amen. I have to teach the young women in our church, don't marry lazy guys. Don't marry a man hoping he's going to grow up. Don't marry a guy if he doesn't have a job or a work ethic, because that's going to be a miserable marriage. Amen. All right. You know, I'm, I'm picking on you women, but I'm trying to help you because you're my sisters in Christ and I know what God has in you and wants for you, and the American dream is not it. Confident. That's one thing the American women are not, is confident. And it's because their, their role has been hijacked. Uh, Americans are more insecure than they've ever been, but a lot of it's because they don't know God anymore. You think about 100 years ago, women were confident. They did their job. They did their thing. They, they, they ran the home. They, they supported their man. They didn't have the suicide rates we have today or the insecurity issues. or uh, you know, We didn't have psychologists or psychotherapy industry 100 years ago like we did today. We have one today because there's a great need because women don't know what they're supposed to be. They're being misused by the world. You're a hammer being used as a screwdriver or you're a wrench being used as a, a pry bar and it makes you miserable and you realize you're not doing what God made you to do and it depresses you. But if you submit to what God has for you, man, you have some confidence about you. She knew what to do to turn away the wrath of David. Nabal wouldn't even face David, but Abigail went and sat down face to face with him. That's a confident woman. Here's the giant killer. He's mad. I know how to pacify it. That's a brave woman. Oh, man, that's a brave woman. Courageous. She faced an angry David in a company of his mighty men all by herself. When nobody else could, when these guys were killing Philistine garrisons by themselves, this one little woman went out there and said, please, have mercy. And they could have hacked her down. Boy, well, this is a woman of God. I love it. I'm glad I named my second Abigail. Courageous, skilled. Abigail was no slouch. She prepared the five dressed sheep and all the other gifts and loaded down the donkeys. This shows a strong work ethic. 
No bonbons and soap operas here. This woman was a workhorse. And yet the Bible says she was beautiful. David could have had any woman. He wanted her. And then no respecter of persons. Abigail did not defend her husband's wickedness. She would have defended her husband, but the wickedness she could not defend. She sided with truth and integrity. This is a tremendous woman. This is one of my favorite women in the whole Bible. Abigail's testimonies. Abigail's servitude spared her entire family's life. We'd say from the sword of David. She successfully stopped an angry David. Of course, it didn't stop judgment coming upon Nabal, but he probably had it coming for a long time. And this situation was the straw that broke the camel's back when it came to judgment. David blessed her in the name of the Lord. Now, that's one thing. When David runs into your camp ready to kill you, you, you pacify his anger and he begins to prophesy blessing over you. And now your whole household's even more blessed. Abigail earned David's respect. You know that wasn't an easy thing to do. She was found desirable by David and was married to him. So you don't you know she lived in the palace the rest of her life. And, and all of her kids, we don't know what she had. At least my Bible recollection doesn't. Uh, how many children she might have had prior to that. All of them taking care of the rest of their life. Because she was a servant. And not a coward, but a hard worker. And everything she'd always done really paid off that day. And that speaks a lot to us. We ought to be faithful and stewards and hard workers and servants, uh, servants and humble in everything we do because one day it's going to pay off for us. In the face of the worst opposition, the worst nightmare that could roll into town, we just do what we've been taught to do. It'll pay off that day. And in that day, it might turn around to a total victory and even a tremendous promotion. But you, just, you, don't, know, you don't know. One thing is for sure, if you, if you follow the American dream and the American pattern for a woman, you'll die an angry, bitter feminist. You might marry, but you'll be miserable in that marriage because you'll control the whole thing. And there's no grace to control your marriage if you're a woman. It's the man's job. That's why I also teach our young ladies, never marry a man that has a weaker personality than you. He might be a leader, but if you have a stronger personality, you'll always find a way to arm wrestle him out of the way. He doesn't mean he has to be louder than you. The Bible says kings can scatter evil with their eyes. They don't have to yell. They don't have to raise a hand. They can just cut a look. And that says, that's enough, stop it. But if you want to go ahead and marry whoever you want to and settle, you can marry somebody with a weaker personality than you and suffer the next 50 years of marriage and be kind of miserable. You'll love them, but you'll just kind of realize you're not going as fast as you could. What she overcame, Abigail overcame a certain destruction and calamity. She served God when her husband wouldn't. And she found a new life. That probably summarizes the best. She served Jehovah God even when her churlish husband wouldn't. And because of that, she found a new life. And it's, it's an awesome story to study. Ruth, another awesome handmaiden of the Bible. Ruth's name means friendship. Her servitude gained her a husband and a place in Christ's lineage. Ruth was a Moabitess. She served pagan gods. When we meet her in the book of Ruth, she is married uh, to Naomi's son. They are living in Moab, uh, which is to the southeast of Israel, kind of outside the territory. Moab's were the enemies of God. But uh, uh, Naomi's husband had moved the family down there during a time of drought. And her sons had married pagans, which lets you know you don't move for money's sake because your kids end up marrying pagans. You stay right where God wants you to be and God will take care of you if you're a person of faith, if you believe God. So uh, Ruth was one of the daughter-in-laws, but she was a pagan Moabite. And when the sons die and the husband dies, boy, didn't that work out well. We move for food and everybody dies. If we'd have stayed put, we'd have been skinnier, but alive and married non-pagans. 
But so calamity falls. I've, I've watched that happen too many times. People move for money, people move for convenience, and calamity strikes their home. Naomi lost her husband and her two sons, and all she's left with is two daughter-in-laws. And one of the daughter-in-laws decides to go back to her family in Moab, but Ruth says, I go with you, and your God becomes my God. And she converts there. Let's go back to Israel. Let's see what Jehovah God can do. Ruth was widowed and, in a far, uh, widowed and in a foreign land. Ruth was seemingly abandoned and desolate. She left her family and her home to serve Naomi, her mother-in-law. Her heart of servitude and her hard work ethic earned her a place in Boaz's heart. And he took her hand in marriage. So far, we see several things in common with these ladies. They're submitted and they're hard workers. That's what makes them handmaidens. Two simple formulas, if you want to say it. Submitted, hard worker. Submitted and a hard worker. And that really doesn't touch the American woman much anymore. Now, she might be a hard worker because she feeds her family or takes care of her family. But the submission part, I think America's getting a D minus on across the board. Not just women, but men and women. She returns with Naomi to Israel. And they are basically, they're both widows. So they're the lowest on the food chain in Israel. And thank God for the Mosaic law, which says... Leave the gleanings in the field for the widows and the orphans and protect them. Boaz was a wealthy man. He was of the tribe of Judah. And Ruth would go out and to take care of her mother-in-law, she would do all the work to feed the mother-in-law, to honor the mother-in-law. She has no kinship to this woman except that she used to be married to the son who's now dead. But now she has bound herself in her heart and covenanted with Naomi, I will take care of you. So she submits and she serves, and every day she works hard picking up the gleanings, or that means what the the harvesters have dropped in the field, the wheat field. She's picking it up and taking it home, and it's basically poverty food is what it is. It's welfare. Basically, it's welfare for the widows. But she does this. So her qualities, she was submitted. She was submitted to her mother-in-law and obeyed every command her mother-in-law gave her. She was courageous. She left all that she knew to stay close to Naomi. Uh, A lot of folks today don't want to leave home. They're mama's boys. They're daddy's girls, and they can't stand to move outside their comfort zone. But not uh, not Ruth. She refused to return to her hometown of Moab. I would add where everything is comfortable and familiar. There is no evidence she ever saw her birth family again. Wow. That takes a lot of faith. A woman you're not even related to now, and you're never going to see your brothers or your sisters or your mom or your dad or your nieces or nephews again, but she chose to do it. Diligent. Ruth was not afraid to work in the fields and do whatever it took to survive as a widow. Committed. Ruth was committed to her mother-in-law, Naomi. She followed and served her. She probably knew Naomi wouldn't make it on her own. Somebody had to care for this woman. She was faith-filled. She left the land of her birth, denied the gods of her family, and came to trust in the living God. So that's a faithful thing. So we see the same pattern again. We saw it with Hagar. We saw it with Abigail. Now we're seeing it with Ruth. The submission, hard work, diligent, faithful, courageous, not living for themselves is really what it amounts to. You you try to convince a 22-year-old girl today not to live for herself, and she'll scream at you. She'll say, but I have dreams. That social media fed you five years ago. Do you really think those are God's dreams? If you're a Christian... You cannot deny the truth of the Bible. The Bible's not changed in 2,000 years, though our culture is devolving. 
The truth of the Bible says if you will live for somebody more than you, you'll be prospered. The truth of the Bible says God is not interested in your dreams. He has his own plan for your life. The truth of the Bible says unless you're found faithful over somebody else's, nobody will give you your own. That's the truth of the Bible. Now, America likes to call itself Christian, but if you look at the way we live, we're not very Christian. We're selfish. Dr. Barclay says, you don't have to worry about America going pagan. We won't go pagan. We'll go secular. We'll go, we'll go like the French, just secular, believing in science more than anything else, having a faith in men in a laboratory who are biased because they get government funding. Science is just as biased as politics is. Ruth's testimony. Ruth's diligence and faith gave her favor in the eyes of Boaz, in his fields first, then in, her, in his heart. He spotted, what drew his attention to this woman is how faithful and what a hard worker she was. We could say, men, don't marry a lazy woman. Do not marry a lazy woman. Do not marry a lazy woman. Pastor Okwoko taught us that women need home training. He said in the African culture, if a woman cannot care for you, send her home. There's even a famous uh, Jamaican song about having no home training. Basically, it says, it's a um, Harry Belafonte song he made famous in the 50s. He says, um, send her back to her mama, and when her mama trains her back up, send her back to me, we'll live together in harmony. So it's all about a woman having home training because that's her design. I know, boy, if you've if you got college in you, that, that rubs you raw. It rubs you raw for me to say a woman should be able to take care of the home and her family and a career. Proverbs 31 permits that. I've traveled the world now. I don't see happy women in America. Not many. I see joy-filled women all over the world. Even the Icelandic women who are Proverbs 31 women by cultural design, those women do everything and yet they're still a woman. And they have such joy living on the top of the earth at 66 degrees north latitude. Fishermen, gutting things, eating rotten shark, building houses, and yet when husband comes home, they're the woman. And the husband's the man. Because that's what it takes to exist at the top of the world for a thousand years. But I don't see happy women in America because they're, they've been trained by secular universities and mamas to rebel against their own God-given design. My phone would never be happy if I used it as a hammer. <laughs> and yet, if this is a woman, the university is teaching her to... And she can't understand why she's cracked and busted up and hurtful and doesn't operate and, and miserable. It's because that's not your design, honey. Amen. Got to get moving here. Testimonies. Boaz pronounced a blessing on her, just like David pronounced a blessing on Abigail. She had a reputation for being a virtuous woman. She, Ruth remarried to Boaz and had a child named Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, who fathered David, who gave birth down the line to Jesus Christ. Boaz, by the way, was the son of Rahab the harlot. And his daddy's name was Salmon, not Salmon. Salmon is the fish. Hear me, folks. Some of you still rub me raw. Pastor, you want to come over and have some Salmon? Boaz's daddy? You're cooking Boaz's daddy? Salmon. Everybody say it with me now. Salmon. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. They catch Salmon, not salmon. Now, we had a ski company up in Seattle called Solomon, but that's also a king in Israel's history. Salmon is the fish. Salmon is the man. 
All right, salmon. Got it? Good. You come to church, your grammar gets better too. Ruth, a Moabitess, became the great-great-grandmother of Jesus Christ, just like her grandmother-in-law was also a pagan, Rahab the harlot. Because Boaz was the son of a harlot. What she overcame, Ruth overcame sorrow and loss to start a new life. A lot of folks go through hell and they never recover. She went through total loss, total hopelessness, total depravity, started off at the bottom of life again and ended up becoming a wife to a tremendously powerful husband in Israel. Bathsheba, boy, we're out of time. I got to go real quick. Bathsheba means daughter of an oath. Her servitude has left the Proverbs 31 legacy. Bathsheba wrote Proverbs 31. Though her Bible fame was birthed in controversy, she's the adulteress. She was the uh, wife of Uriah the Hittite, who David had an affair with. Uriah the Hittite was one of the 40 mighty men of valor. Uriah the Hittite was one of David's best men. But I believe personally that Bathsheba and David kind of had eyes for each other, kind of coming and going. If they'd been serving together for about 30 years, you know they kind of, they knew each other very well. And they kind of had this thing going on in their heart. And so David calls for her. She doesn't resist. And they have sex and they get pregnant and that baby dies. The prophet Nathan judges David, says, uh, you are that man, you're guilty. You've killed a, a poor man and taken his wife. And therefore, judgment will not leave your house. So her fame is birthed in controversy. If it hadn't been for that affair, we'd have never known who Bathsheba was. We'd have never known she was married to Uriah the Hittite. She becomes the author of the most famous of all passages for women. And that is the Proverbs 31 woman. This passage details what a woman and a handmaiden of the Lord looks and acts like. So Bathsheba's qualities, submission, It is evident from her Proverbs 31 writings, Bathsheba understood submission. Even in David's old age, she still referred to herself as David's handmaid. After her son Solomon is made made king, she submits to him as well. She approaches both her husband and Solomon when he's king and calls them my Lord. Talking to her own son, my Lord, uh, would you have me do this? My Lord, may I recommend this? Even to David, my Lord, when she would approach him as king, she would approach him as my Lord because he's the king. Not, hey, honey, get over here. She understood he's on the throne right now. I have to treat him like everybody else does. That's honor. Tremendously submitted woman. Forgiveness. She had to forgive David for having her husband Uriah killed. You ever thought about that? She lost her first love. She had an affair, which is bad enough. And then to cover it up, her lover kills her husband. We don't know how many children they had. She had to forgive David for killing her husband Uriah and she had to forgive herself for betraying Uriah with the adultery and ultimately being part of the murder. A lot of forgiveness that had to go on in this woman's heart. She had to learn to forgive everything involved. Their sin also brought death to their first child. So think about that. You carry a child for nine months. You're fighting guilt, shame. And on top of that, it's like kicking a dog when it's down. The baby dies and it's all the judgment of God. All could have been avoided by not having an affair. So there's a lot of forgiveness. You got to know she's fighting emotions against David. Here we have a baby. Even if it was a baby birthed in sin or conceived in sin, still a baby. It's innocent. And because of this sin, the baby dies. After it's born, not, not a stillbirth. After the baby's born, the baby dies. Some of you have lost babies. You know how horrific, how painful, how emotional, how it just messes with you. She had to overcome that and forgive as well. This too required forgiveness. So think about those two strong things. We could probably 
dig out more, but those two are very evident. Submitted and full of forgiveness. Bathsheba's testimonies. Bathsheba was able to carry on with life after the death of her first husband, the death of David's illegitimate child, and she successfully raised the future king, Solomon. So she was able to pull herself out of the doldrums, the mulligrubs, postpartum depression, anything we have names for today. She was able to pull herself up out of that, the guilt of losing her first love, her, probably her teenage love, Uriah the Hittite, and being guilty of all this great conspiracy and controversy in the kingdom and bringing great shame to the throne of David. And yet, faith must go on. The kingdom must go on. We still have a kingdom to run. And now I'm married to him. And now we got to make decisions. And we still have to feed the people and defend the borders. We have to, we have to go on. Tremendous woman of faith. She wrote other parts of Proverbs too. When you see the end of Proverbs talk about King Lemuel, that's another name for Solomon. And so uh, those are some of her writings as well. She contributed to the Bible, even after having all that horrific sin in her past. Bathsheba's testimonies. Bathsheba was able to carry on and raise the future king. God used her to pen Proverbs 31. She overcame tremendous shame and sorrow to be a godly queen full of great wisdom. The two most famous wives of David are Abigail and Bathsheba. He had other wives, Michael. Uh, she was a wretched. She was Saul's daughter and uh, cursed David and made fun of worship. And so therefore she died barren and was given to another man to marry. There was a divorce there. But Bathsheba and Abigail called handmaidens and also knew how to serve God and overcome great adversity. So final part here. I, I, wonder, I put this. We'll cover this interview with a real witch in next week's lesson. I wanted to throw it in here twice just to drive home the point of what's really working behind the scenes. When you think it's the American dream, it's the spirit of Antichrist. This is a 2012 interview with ChristianPost.com. They ask a former witch and now a Christian convert, S.A. Tower, the following question. What drew you to a witch's lifestyle? Now we're talking about a real witch, not the wicked witch of the East, a real witch. Someone involved in the occult, someone involved in demon worship, someone who operates in pagan power like other cultures know. In America, they don't believe it. They think it's the thing of Harry Potter, but it's real. This former witch and now a Christian convert said this. For me personally, the appeal was self-empowerment and the feminine aspect of witchcraft. The lifestyle enabled me the freedom to make my own decisions according to how I saw fit and gave me the ability to put those changes into action through magic. I think a lot of people are looking, on, looking for hands-on spirituality where they can incorporate their own will rather than God's will. That sounds like the American dream. We live in a me-focused society that's all about what I want. Part of it is the fault of churches because Christianity should not be a spectator religion. We are all part of the body and each of us has a significant part in the whole church. That is a quote from an interview with a real former witch who is now a born-again believer. I want you to see that what drew, drew her to witchcraft was feminism. Spirit of Antichrist. Me, me, me. What I want. My major. My dream. My career. My job. You can't tell me what to do. And I'm going to make it happen with some sorcery. What we're teaching is the total opposite of that. Lord, give me somebody to serve. Give me somebody's vision that I can fulfill for them. And may I glorify you with their vision. May the Lord Jesus Christ help every woman become a mighty handmaiden of the Lord. Amen. Next week, we'll pick up with part two. We have three or four more handmaidens that we'll study. I trust this has helped you and blessed you and challenged you. Father, we thank you for these biblical role models. 
They all were blessed. They were promoted, these handmaidens of the Lord. And what it took was a total sacrifice of self. And yet they're recorded in the Bible when selfish people are not. Help us, Lord, to be servants of you, whether women or men. We're all called to be servants and handmaidens. Let us glorify you with our life. In Jesus' name, amen.